Romans 8 verse 14, Paul says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And Father, we ask for just the help of your Holy Spirit as we continue now in this time of worship. Lord, we've sang unto you in worship. We've prayed. We've been fellowshipping together, hopefully pleasing your heart in such. And we want to continue now in an attitude of worship by just listening expectantly and attentively to what you as the authority in our lives would want to say to us. Lord, we need direction and guidance and instruction. And we ask that as always, you would provide it now through your word, that you would speak into our hearts and our lives things that we personally need to hear. Instruct us, comfort us, counsel us, correct us. And as always, just prepare us now by your spirit and may your spirit who inspired your words speak to us and be our interpreter and our teacher this morning. Bless your word, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't know if you consider yourself a dreamer or ever imagine on occasion, but have you ever wondered perhaps what it may be like, for example, to be someone like a king's kid? Well, for every Christian, there's really no need to imagine what that may be like. Maybe if you look at some person in royalty and wonder what it would like to be actually their kid and the heir to their great throne or some wealthy person, because truly... Uh, the Bible tells us in Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. So the Bible declares to us that the Lord our God is a great king. And the Bible also declares that those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ are actually children of God, who is, the Bible says, a great king. So in essence, you could say very simply, we are king's kids. Scripturally, that is what the Bible teaches we actually are, that our father is actually a great king. And the passage we're looking at together this morning in these verses seeks to emphasize that we are indeed that, that we are king's kids. You notice the continuous references to being sons of God, children of God, adopted by God. There's that continual emphasis here, and it describes some of what it means to be king's kids king's kids of the king of kings now the background remember our last few verses paul had introduced there the reality of the spirit of god indwelling our lives and he talked about how at conversion or salvation when we accepted jesus christ as our savior and put our faith and trust in him that a part of that conversion experience is the spirit of God who had been drawing us to Jesus Christ, convincing us of our need to be saved, convicting us of our sin and that Jesus is the only savior and possible means of forgiveness and salvation, that the spirit of God actually takes up residence within, that God actually moves in our life and the very spirit of the risen Christ, the spirit of God 
enters into the life of the born-again Christian, and now by the Spirit's help within, internally, by the Spirit's assistance on the inside, he gives us power that we don't naturally possess on our own to be able to overcome sin's temptation and to, as Paul said in our last verse together, to put to death the demands and the requests of our sin nature. It still solicits us. It still gives us demands to fulfill it and to satisfy it. But Paul said, we don't have an obligation now to the flesh any longer. We did before we were saved, but we don't owe the flesh anything now. In fact, the only thing we sincerely owe the flesh is the reality that we can say no to it and that by the Spirit's help, we can resist and overcome temptation. So if we then choose to say no to sin's temptation, the Spirit of God is within us to then help us to carry out that decision. He says it's by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. Again, our responsibility is to choose to put it to death, to say no to it and to resist temptation, but it is the Spirit within who helps us and empowers us to be able to carry that out. Now, Paul wants to continue, having just spoken about the Spirit's ministry within us, to provide a little more instruction regarding, in this chapter, other ministries of the Spirit of God within our lives. That's why he continues in verse 14, declaring, For as many as are, he now says, led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So another internal ministry of the Spirit within us, we see here, verse 14, is that he provides direction, or he provides guidance in the life of the child of God. Now, in essence, verse 14 is first and foremost making a declaration of how this is a defining mark of a true child of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these, there's where the emphasis is, these are the sons of God. In other words, he's trying to say, this is how we can truly tell if somebody is indeed a child of God, because they are now led by the Spirit of God, which is a change. Something different has happened. Before a person is saved, they basically live a self-governed life. You're the captain of your own fate. You're the master of your own soul. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. You are in charge. And that's the biggest issue that keeps many people from coming to and surrendering to Jesus Christ is they don't want to give up control. They don't want to surrender the rights to their own control in their life. And so they hold out in pride and fear and those type of things. And they live a self-directed life. And before a person saved, they're in the pilot seat. Uh, they want to be, and in essence, they are in control, ruling their own life. But the thing is, in that state and condition, what also is taking place is a person is vulnerable in such a way where Satan invisibly, though often they are not conscious of it yet, Satan invisibly is sort of manipulating that selfish bent, that self-governed lifestyle through the unseen currents of his work in a person's life. Listen to what John says in 1 John 5.19. He says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. See, when a person is self-governed at the same time, they're also susceptible to the spirit of the devil himself being at work in his unseen ways, those unseen spiritual currents that are at work. And the Bible says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, that like the current blows in the wind, that the devil is manipulating people's lives, though they're unconscious of it, 
because that is the spirit, the Bible says, that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's the condition prior to salvation. But here's the thing. Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil and particularly to destroy that work of a person being guided by the devil and to liberate people. And at a person's salvation, this is critical to understand, there comes an internal liberation. There's a liberation internally that happens within when a person accepts Jesus Christ. As the Spirit enters in a person's life, the Holy Spirit then takes over control on the inside. And he seeks to take over control to provide, you could say, a course correction. To set us on the right path, to begin to lead us internally from within. And there's a a definite change where now the Spirit begins to steer a person's life and and a person lets go of the steering wheel and the spirit of god when he comes in takes over the steering wheel and now god from the inside makes a course correction and the holy spirit begins to lead us in the way that god intends for us to live to lead us in the way god's will would play out in our life and you can tell and recognize therefore god's children who they really are the bible is saying who they truly are, he says here, verse 14, because as many as are now led by the Spirit of God, these, he says, these are the ones who are the sons of God. See, again, thinking of that father, son, parent, child application, it is natural uh, in a healthy relationship anyway for a son to live under the authority or the direction of their father. In any healthy relationship, a child or a son should naturally receive guidance from their father, receive direction from their father, and even at times to receive correction from their father. That's appropriate. That's natural as the result in the same way spiritually of you and I transitioning from being created by God, which we are and we'll talk more about, to that place where we actually are born spiritually and become a child of God, we now transition and begin to relate to God as our Father, receiving His guidance, receiving His instruction, receiving correction, but it happens internally as the Spirit is working in us and now leading us, guiding and directing us. So one of the clear indications that a person is truly saved is right there in verse 14, is they now live a life that is led by the Spirit of God. If a person is not sure if they're saved, that should be a real good searching question. Is your life led by the Spirit of God? Is the Spirit of God guiding your life and steering from within? Now we may ask, how is our life led by the Spirit? How does that practically unfold? How does that play out in a personal way. Well, one life way our life's led by the Spirit, considering what Romans 6, 7, and 8 has been all about, one of the primary ways our lives are led by the Spirit is in relation to overcoming sin. And He leads us into a holy life where we seek to do what pleases God. One of the ways we'll be led by the Spirit is that He will reveal to us what is sinful. In other words, the Spirit will begin to lead us into a proper understanding that, look, this is not pleasing to God. And at one time, maybe we thought it was acceptable, but then the Spirit leading us from within says, look, you used to do this in your prior life, but the Spirit begins to lead us into a clear understanding. Look, that, that's something that God hates. That dishonors God. That displeases God. So he begins to reveal to us what is sinful, what we should avoid and refrain, 
And he also leads us in regards to when we are guilty of violating what does displease God. We call that conviction. And that's one of the ways the Spirit leads us. You know, in our lives, maybe we say something, and, and I know I've had this experience before where I say something, and there's that internal prompting. I hear the Spirit of God say, Man, that was really critical. But you need to stop being so critical. Or there are occasions, you know, just re recently, we well, yesterday took a trip back and forth to PA to go visit some uh, uh, family, and, and my wife had left one, I think it was the camera, out in the car, and we had been there for about 10 minutes, so I think I left the camera out in the car still, and there was that moment where if you're, any, if you're a husband, you know what that means. I think I left something out in the car. It's like seven degrees where we were at. It was in Everett, Pennsylvania. And my shoes were off and I was comfortable. And I saw her boots were still on. So my logical mind started saying, your boots are still on. I already took my shoes off. Uh, and, 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 I, and I missed the moment. And she said, oh, my shoes are still on. I'll, I'll go out and get it. And, and as soon as she walked out of the room, the spirit said, you are selfish. You're selfish. And see, whether it's in these large, grandiose ways, or what, but the Spirit is there to convict us. He leads us in regards to realizing what's sinful, recognizing what we should abstain from, convicting us when we violate what's pleasing to God, whether it's clearly something written in His Word or just those ways in which we know we should be responsive. He also leads us, relating to sin, in regards to overcoming temptation when it presents itself to us. So when there's the opportunity to sin, the Spirit of God, when the opportunity to sin is there and we haven't yet capitalized, it's the Spirit of God who's trying to lead us to overcome temptation and to avoid indulging that temptation in whatever ways he may do. He's trying to lead us into that path of victory. And more than that, when we do fail and rebel, the wonderful thing is the Spirit is who leads us into confession. So when we do fail, it's the Spirit of God that says, you need to confess that. You need to call it what it is. Don't make excuses. Take ownership for it. Say it as it is. Admit what you've done. Ask God's forgiveness and even receive God's forgiveness. He's the one that leads us to that place of repentance and saying, look, you need to change. You need to stop that. You need to turn around and do the opposite of maybe what you've been doing. And it's the spirit who leads us and directs us in relation to sin primarily. In our lives, But certainly there are other ways, and we could spend our morning talking about other ways the Spirit leads us as well. He leads us into a clear understanding in the Word of God. The Spirit leads us in relation to seeking God. The reason you came here this morning is onefold. It's because the Spirit of God prompted you with a desire to come seek the Lord. It's because the Spirit of God prompted you to have an interest to say, you know, I'm going to drag this carcass out out of this bed and instead of sitting around watching something on the tube or catching up on chores around that no, I'm going to get dressed and, and I'm going to go in the freezing cold and I'm going to drive over to a place where I can be with other Christians and worship God and see what God might want to say to me and give God the glory and the adoration he deserves and let him minister to me and equip me and strengthen me spiritually the spirit directs us to pick up our Bible and read it when we read it the spirit of God is working with in us he's the one who prompts us to say pray talk to god look that stuff doesn't come from within us my flesh has no interest in reading the bible my flesh has no interest in praying i don't even want to come to church if it's up to me i know i should because i'm the pastor 
But it's the Spirit of God within us that prompts us to seek God. He leads us to, to serve the Lord. He directs us on how we serve. It's the Spirit of God who leads us into finding the will of God for our life and understanding personally what God's will and plan is for us. There are so many ways in which he leads us in our lives. But here's the thing, important to remember. Please don't miss this. Is it not true it is always possible to rebel against any leadership? I don't care whether it's governmental leadership. I don't care whether it's law enforcement. I don't care whether it's in a school and it's your you know, school teacher, whether it's your boss. It's any leadership, it is possible to rebel against any form of proper leadership. And so in the same way spiritually, we have to choose in our lives whether we're going to follow the leading of the Spirit. And at times, we can choose not to be led by the Spirit when He's trying to lead us, when He's trying to direct us. The Bible warns us not to quench the Spirit, First Thessalonians 5. The Bible warns us not to grieve the Spirit, which means to cause Him sadness and grief because we rebel against what is right and what's godly in what we're doing. The Bible warns us as well not to resist the Spirit. Again, we can quench, grieve, resist the Spirit. We can do that. Thing to ask that's searching by way of application this morning, in your life, are you? Are you truly seeking every day to be led by the Spirit? I think it would be a great thing for every one of us this morning as we depart to maybe make a decision right here, right now, this day to say, you know what, I want to seek to be more cooperative to the Spirit of God's leading in my life. I want to seek to be more submissive as the Spirit is trying to lead me in my life. Look what Paul says, verse 15, he goes on, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear but you receive the spirit of adoption he says by whom we cry out abba father so here's another way this spirit is working within and that's to cultivate within us a sense of acceptance a sense of security and a sense of intimacy with god the spirit within you and me as he's working within the child of god is trying to cultivate and facilitate a sense of acceptance security and intimacy again before we're a christian look what verse 15 says before we're a christian a person lives in a spirit of bondage that produces fear that leads towards fear that word bondage speaks of being enslaved and prior to accepting jesus christ as savior and becoming indwelt with the spirit of god the truth of the matter is our human spirit is controlled we've talked about and dominated like a slave by the sin nature jesus himself said he who sins is a slave to sin Jesus made it very evident, the Bible teaches, that a life prior to following Jesus Christ is a life of internal enslavement. That's what the true condition is. And that's why sometimes, I remember before I was a Christian, I didn't get saved till I was almost 18 years old, and if I'm honest about my life before, or when I talk to people, sometimes you're speaking to unsaved people, and you can almost get the sense, their, their struggle, their, their, their agitation, with is they feel like they're trapped. They feel like they're stuck. And they feel like they're just stuck and, and they just they want to they want freedom. They're searching for freedom and they feel trapped and stuck in their situation. Well, that's because they are trapped. They are stuck. They're a slave within. 
There's internal enslavement. There's a slavish fear of bondage from within. And there's also an internal sense that a person's guilt is making them feel very fearful and intimidated within. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. And there's that sense before you come to Christ of an insecurity within because you realize in the depth of your conscience, I don't have a real, I don't have a relationship with God. And, and I, don't, I don't really know what's going to happen when I stand before God someday. And that then facilitates within a person the manifestation of the fear of death. And that slavish spirit of in bondage uh, and enslavement within causes a person to have the fear within them. And a lot of what it is, it's a fear of death. It's a terror of dying someday and facing the death experience. Uncertainty and insecurity in their heart of what's going to happen after I die. I don't know what's going to happen. Because I don't have that surety and certainty yet. That's never been resolved in a person's heart. Hebrews 2.15 tells us this. It says in Hebrews 2.15 that unsaved humanity, listen to what it says, has a fear of death so that all their lifetime they are subject to bondage. See, death is the dreaded enemy. Look at our culture. Look at advertising. What's everything we're trying to do? We want to prolong life, extend life. Because why? Because people are terrified to die. It's the dreaded enemy of every human being. So people do everything they can to avoid death because they're afraid of the outcome of death because they don't really know what's going to happen on the other side of it and they're not certain. So there's this slavish fear that dominates their soul within. And in the deepest part of their being, they're enslaved, internal bondage, and it manifests itself then in things like people being paranoid and being anxious and feeling like they're trapped and worried and stressed and sometimes just agitated within and angry and anti everybody stop trying to control me. And they don't even realize what's going on. They're a slave within. And it's a bondage within them that causes that fearfulness and that slavish fear. But listen, Hebrews 2.15 says this, that Jesus came, listen, to release those who through fear of death were all their time subject to bondage. Jesus came to liberate people from that, to release people from that internal enslavement within. And at conversion, when we receive Jesus, we don't continue in this life of slavish internal bondage. In fact, he says the opposite happens. He says, verse 15, that when you received the spirit, you did not receive that same spirit of bondage again to fear. Again, the Bible tells us, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind. See, when the spirit of God invades a person's soul and indwells them at salvation, there's a complete opposite experience that begins to happen within. This is what Paul's getting to now here in the 15th verse. Contrary to what some people's wrong perception of God is, God's not some strict, harsh master that wants to in bondage people's lives. And that's why many people stay away from God. They have this impression that God is going to put them under this slavish in bondagement. So they, well, I don't, I don't want to have to submit my life. So look, God does not intend for that type of an experience for life. It's the exact opposite that God intends. God intends internal liberation. 
a sense of being free within, not a slavish fear anxiety where we're cowering down before God like a, like a slave terrified of the master if they just step out of line in one way. The entry of God's spirit is actually what alleviates that slavish, fearful, internal enslavement in a person's soul. He says, verse 15, you received instead the spirit of adoption by whom we now cry out, Abba, Father. So we received the spirit of God's own son, Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ who came within and made us a literal child of God and offers to us acceptance from God and a sense of internal security from God, a sense of intimacy with God. It says when we received the spirit of salvation that he became to us, look at the term there, it's beautiful, the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption. Now what Paul's drawing off of here is an actual practice that existed in the Roman culture that was very common and they would understand what he was speaking about. In the Roman culture, a culture that was infiltrated with slavery, some six million slaves, a master could, if he chose to, select one of his slaves and actually choose to legally adopt one of his slaves to make that slave actually become a son, to become an heir to his throne and have all the same legal rights and status as a natural born child. A master could offer that adoption to a slave. And basically through a formal process, their relationship was changed and that slave became a son and now had all the legal rights as an adult son, had all the same privileges and opportunities. And therefore, when the adoption happened, it was totally appropriate. In fact, it was anticipated and accepted that that son would now relate to that master as a father like a child relates to a father, and the status was completely changed. And see, this is what the Bible says has happened to us spiritually. We've received a spirit of adoption from the Father in heaven. Again, contrary to what some people like to believe, what some people state, biblically, hear me, we are not children of God from birth. We are not born and we do not start life as children of God. Are we all created by God? Absolutely. That's biblically true. We are all creations of God. God is the author and creator of life. But biblically, we do not start out life from birth as children of God. In fact, Jesus debated that mindset. In John chapter 8, when the unsaved said that God was their father, listen to what Jesus said in response. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father are what you want to do. Jesus said to the unsaved, not only is God not your father, he says, your father is the devil. And the devil spiritually is still who is directing and ruling your life. Now, however, God in his love has always had a desire, a plan, and a preference to adopt children spiritually to become part of the family of God. Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5 says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. 
See, it's always been God's desire, his plan, his preference to adopt us spiritually, to make us children of God. In essence, we could say this is true, God only has one begotten son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God. Yet, that son, Jesus Christ, has made all the arrangements necessary for his father to adopt children spiritually. And now, if we come to God through Jesus Christ in faith, we can receive the spirit of adoption and become children of God by a spiritual adoption. We can receive that place, that standing, that right to be a child of God, to have all those privileges and experiences. John says it this way in John 1, verse 12 and 13, as many as received him, referring to Jesus, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right, the privilege, the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's spiritual adoption. It's the heart of God. It's the offer of God. And again, think with me, adoption, does it not? It connotates something really beautiful. When you think about adoption and the fact the Bible says that we receive the spirit of adoption, it's a wonderful thing to consider that God wants to adopt you as his child. That that's the way that God describes us becoming his children. Being adopted speaks of being selected and embraced by a loving and willful choice. An adoptive parent chooses to, by their own desire, have you and they have an interest to bless you as their child. They actually select, they initiate, and that adoptive parent wants that child to experience a sense of belonging. That adoptive parent wants a child to experience a sense of acceptance and to experience a sense of intimacy with family in a way that they themselves are causing and creating to come to pass. And this is something special, and the Bible is saying this is what God intends for us. God, as a father, wants to adopt spiritual children. He wants us, as children of God, to experience a sense of security. God wants that sense of security in your heart where he says, look, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I want you to know there's acceptance. I chose you. I adopted you. I selected you. And, and I want you to have a sense of security. And I want you to have a sense of belonging and a sense of intimacy with me. In fact, that's what the rest of verse 15 speaks of, how God's desire is to offer us intimacy. It says, look, it says, by the spirit of adoption, it's by whom, him, the spirit of adoption, we cry out, Abba, Father. By that spirit within us, that term Abba, Father, is a term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy. It's an Aramaic word which basically means Papa, or we would say, daddy. That's the implication there. It denotes intimacy and closeness. It's a term of intimacy, daddy, papa. You know, all of my daughters, when they were first born, at initially, when they started to speak, they all called me dada. And that translated into daddy. And still to this day, primarily, all of them, even as teenagers, call me daddy. And I like that. Because it, it, it intimates intimacy. And it's something that I want it's something that I don't ever want to leave. There's something intimate about that. There's something of a recognition of an intimacy that exists there. Galatians 4 says that we as Christians have received 
the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, it says God sent forth, listen, the spirit of his son into your hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Do you see that? The Bible says that as a result of your spiritual adoption, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart purposely to facilitate a desire to and a comfortability with relating to God very intimately, like a child does a father, that God purposely put his spirit within you to prompt that intimacy, to to cause within you the Holy Spirit to give you a deeper sense of inner security, to cause human insecurities in your life to dissipate because you have the security, my father, he accepts me. And maybe I don't have the acceptance of other family members or this person and maybe everybody else rejects me, but you know what? I don't have to be insecure. I'm very secure because I have a father, the God of all creation, loves me and he chose me and he selected me as child. And listen, look at our world. There's so much insecurity in people's beings. So often you see the way people act and behave and you realize that the root of that is there's such insecurity within them. And yet there's this security that comes as the Spirit of God moves within and assures us that there's acceptance from God. And so all of a sudden there's this change where as a child of God, you're not striving after acceptance all the time. Again, how many times do we look at our own lives or we witness and realize, man, you're always searching for, you're always looking for such acceptance and approval. But when you realize you're accepted in the beloved, it makes you a very secure person. Because all of a sudden you realize, hey, God, I got God's acceptance. God loves me. If God's for me, Paul's going to say, who can be against me? God's for me. And, and Paul later is going to bring out this idea of the, of the tremendous love of God. And see, it's the spirit within you this morning, after you're a Christian, here's what he's doing. He's trying to develop a deeper sense of intimacy between you and God. We talked about being led by the Spirit of God. Listen, let the Spirit of God lead you into a deeper intimacy with your Father. The Spirit of God is trying to direct and to guide and lead in a way whereby you would become more comfortable speaking to God. I'm not really comfortable with prayer. Listen, don't quench the Spirit, man. The Spirit of God is trying to lead you to get more comfortable praying because it's your Father. You're talking to your Father It's the Spirit of God who's prompting you within to want to spend time and it dissolves a lot of that anxious striving where people live life always kind of feeling like they have to pursue this and and I got to take care of myself and look out for myself. No, the Spirit of God is prompting you within in such a way where you begin to live dependently and you say, Father, you'll take care of me. And you go to him for things just like a small child lives dependently upon a father. And you know what? This week, let the Spirit of God lead you into deeper intimacy, a deeper sense of security where you begin to relate to God, not in slavish fear like someone terrified of a master, but realizing the love of a small child, understanding the love of a gracious, good father in such a way where you begin to experience what's on the heart of God for your life. He goes on, verse 16 and 17, to then say, and the Spirit himself also bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified Together, So the Spirit also internally, notice here, he's testifying and communicating to us about 
our relationship with God. So he's working within you for you to communicate to God. He's prompting you to talk to God and to, to seek intimacy with God. But he also is speaking to you about your relationship with God. So he prompts us to speak to God, but he also allows us to hear from God. Verse 16 speaks of how he internally validates and brings an awareness and a constant assurance that we indeed are children of God. It says, verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness. Now think from a court perspective here. In a courtroom, what does a witness do? Someone takes the witness stand. A witness does what? They validate facts. They prove and reinforce that something is true. A witness serves to make people aware of how credible and certain something really is. When you bring a witness to the stand, they speak to try and eliminate doubts and to assure you that there's nothing that you need to question that this is true. This is certain. And this is one of the ministries of the Spirit within the believer. The Spirit who is God and the Spirit who is from God, can't get a better witness than that, speaks to you in the depths of your heart to give assurance to remove doubts within us, which we all wrestle with at times. And he there within us begins to speak to us about being a child of God and says, yeah, this is absolutely real. Oh, I, want, I mean, is it really possible? Could I really be forgiven? And, and the Spirit of God says, absolutely you are. Could this really be true? I mean, all what the Bible I mean, could this? I, and the Spirit of God is there to keep testifying and to keep communicating within. He doesn't want us, as many do, living in a state of being unassured. One of the biggest struggles, many times, for even people spiritually, is a struggle with wrestling with assurance. And that's why God says, "I knew that would be the struggle, so I'm going to put my Spirit within you, so that He can constantly bear witness and testify." that you can be assured. It's all true. My love for you is true. My forgiveness is true. Heaven is true. And notice how it takes place. It says, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. It says there, verse 16, that we're children of God. Again, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. The Bible teaches that God's a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're made in the image of God. In essence, you could say that we are an inferior trinity. We are body, soul, and spirit. We have a physical body. We have a soul or a consciousness, a mind. And we also have a part of us that's spirit, that's eternal. The part of us that's going to last forever. And it's in our spirit where when we're saved, the Holy Spirit enters and awakens our spirit, the eternal part of us, so that we have relationship and fellowship with God. And we read here, it's in the realm of the spirit where God's spirit communicates to us in our spirit, where God speaks to us and confirms this assurance of being children of God. I think kind of in two ways. I know instantly at salvation, this took place for me. When I first became a Christian, I accepted Jesus Christ, there was this instinctive awareness within me, something happened. I couldn't fully explain it, but there was this inward peace that I knew I was his and that something had happened. When I first got saved, I knew nothing of the Bible. I, I, I couldn't give you verses, I couldn't quote verses, but if you asked me, how do you know your sins are forgiven? 
how do you know you're really a child of God now? How, how do you know that it's right to approach God so comfortably? How do you know that you're going to heaven? How do you know that you're saved? I couldn't give you a theological explanation or quote verses, but I sense this ministry within me which would lead me to just say, you know what, I just know. I just know that I know that I know. Because the Spirit of God was testifying within to me that I was indeed a child of God. And I think this ministry, that still small voice of the Spirit, goes on continuously throughout the walk of the Christian. Whereas we live out our Christian life, there's that inner testimony again and again. Maybe you're going through a hard time, a difficult time, confusion, and your mind is struggling with doubts, and the devil is bombarding you, and, and there's the Spirit of God when doubts come in. And you're going, God, what? And, and the Spirit of God is just there testifying, yes, I know it's hard. And I know right now that everything in your being is saying everything is wrong and things are falling apart and God's abandoned you, but the Spirit of God testifies, listen, God loves you. You're His child. He's not forsaken you. He is with you. He's going to take care of this. He's, and, and the Spirit of God just testifies when those doubts crowd in or maybe after times of failure when we're wrestling with forgiveness or we think we've done something so grievous and there the Spirit of God in a way that no other human being can testifies in the depths of your soul the truth and the assurance of the reality of God's love. And as you're reading the scripture, he illuminates a passage in such a way where you know, gosh, God's talking to me. Or just that still small voice of the Spirit, he speaks into your soul the things that you need to hear to remind us who we are and what God's plan and love for us really is. If that were not enough, notice verse 17. He also speaks to us of our glorious future ahead. He says, and if we're children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So again, an heir is someone who inherits the wealth or the possessions or the estate of their father. And they get to experience it firsthand. Now, an heir is a wonderful thing, but it makes all the difference whose heir you are. Case in point, there's a big difference between my three heirs and the heirs of, let's say, Mr. Buffett or Bill Gates. Big difference there. Now, the Bible tells us here that we are heirs of God. Now, to be an heir of God who possesses all things, the creator and controller and the owner of the heavens and the earth, that makes the heirs of Bill Gates look like poverty cases. Somehow, in some amazing way, eternally, we stand to inherit all the glory of God and what he possesses and what he controls. And the good news is we can't even mess it up because this isn't talking about rewards. And inheritance is one thing. Rewards, the Bible says, yes, will be rewarded for faithfulness. But this is talking about inheritance. Inheritance is based on relationship which is based on your faith in Jesus Christ alone. First Peter tells us that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And you know why I'm confident you're going to receive that inheritance? Because Jesus wants you to receive it. In John chapter 17, it tells us this regarding Jesus, who the Bible says here is our joint heir. We're joint heirs with Jesus because we're joined with Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you've given to me. 
Listen, this morning you're saying, man, I really want to go to heaven. I can't wait to go to heaven. Listen, Jesus wants you to come to heaven more than you want to go to heaven. That doesn't mean you should help him in the process. But he wants you there so that you can experience all that glory just as much as you long and groan to receive that glory yourself. However, part of being united to Christ, look at verse 17. It says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. See, part of being united to Christ means you share in everything with Christ. And can we think for just a moment, what was the pattern of Jesus' life? He came first as a suffering servant, and ultimately he'll return as a glorified king. Which means this very simply, suffering preceded glory. Suffering preceded glory. And that means that right now, not only for you and I too, will suffering in this life precede glory. But here's one thing I want you to catch. The suffering of this life also prepares us for the coming glory. It prepares us. This is where Paul is going to go next week where he says, I consider the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. Our suffering not only precedes the glory of heaven, but it's actually preparing us for the glory in heaven. Again, back to this idea of being an heir and inheritor. If you were wealthy, would you not want to adequately as much as possible prepare your child to receive an incredible inheritance so that they would properly appreciate it and respect it? Absolutely. Well, listen, God's a good father. So the spirit within us, he's sort of preparing us within. And in measured forms, as God the Father allows through his filter of love and wisdom, the spirit guides and leads us through times of necessary trials and struggles and suffering in various forms in such a way whereby he's further preparing us for the weight of glory ahead. And here's why. I think if we knew the glory that we're one day going to experience, our minds would implode. We wouldn't be able to handle it. That's what Paul's going to say as we go on in our study next week. So right now, the Holy Spirit of God is working within us to prepare us to share with Christ in such a way where then when we're experiencing the glory, we'll be ready for it and we will fall down at the feet of Jesus and cast our crowns because the Spirit of God prepared us for what we're ultimately one day going to inherit. Hey, this morning, are you struggling? Are you suffering? Hey, look at it not necessarily as just God letting you go through a hard time. Look at it as a way of God preparing you for the incredible appreciation of the glory that he has ahead of us.